0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jeremy Sheff, Professor of Law and Director of the Intellectual Property Law Center at St. John's University School of Law. We will discuss his excellent new article, Jefferson's pa- Taper. So, welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thanks, Brian. Um, so, I-, I thought this paper was fantastic, um, both the initial, like, surprising insight but also some of the ideas that you draw out of it. So I was wondering if you could just start with the insider observation itself, right? I mean, what is the parable of the taper, and how is it commonly understood?
1: Yeah, so um, in intellectual property law, and more specifically patent law, there's this letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, to uh, a correspondent who was a stranger to him, uh, who was asking for Jefferson's views on an important patent litigation that was pending some decade after Jefferson had left the White House. Uh, and uh, and uh, so uh, Jefferson writes back to this correspondent, uh, gives him his opinions of the patent in suit in that case, uh, and then starts to wax philosophical about uh, about the, the natural rights of property in inventions, whether they exist and what the proper foundation of patent uh, rights is, Uh, And he says that he can find no uh, foundation for uh, uh, natural rights of property uh, to inventions on the part of the inventors and that if any uh, right exists, it's going to be created by statute, by positive law, and that societies may differ as to whether they think that giving such rights by statute is a good idea or not, whether uh, it is worth the embarrassment of a patent. Uh, to uh, give uh, inventors the encouragement of working on ideas that may produce utility, in his words. So that's the general uh, uh, content of the uh, of the letter, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And generally, uh, it's read in contemporary intellectual property scholarship as uh, as pitting Jefferson against what we now understand to be a Lockean or natural rights theory of patent rights. The idea here is that. Um, Property rights in John Locke's telling uh, emerge from uh, the moral claims of labor, uh, that they are pre-political rights, they don't uh, depend for uh, their justification on any action of the state, Uh, and uh, that we can identify the rights of inventors and of authors with the labor of the mind, uh, such that uh, by virtue of their labor, inventors and authors have a claim, a moral claim, uh, to control uh, what's done with their creations. And uh, so the reading of Jefferson that we have now is uh, that that is not an appropriate justification for a patent or a copyright rights, and that really uh, what we have to look at is uh, whether, on balance, patent rights do good in the world. That is, whether uh, they produce good results. And this is in keeping with a modern utilitarian understanding of patent and copyright law, which is uh, uh, based on the... the uh, the kind of law and economics and, and frankly, kind of first wave Chicago school law and economics view, uh, that uh, what we need to know in these cases is whether patent or copyright rights tend toward efficiency, whether they solve particular market failures like free rider problems and things like that.
0: Right. So the Jefferson's Taper parable then plays into this modern dispute or kind of modern disagreement about, about patent theory and the justification for, for patents but you you point out that the parable seems to be a reference to something else yeah
1: so I mean I haven't actually mentioned the actual parable right the parable is a metaphor that is woven through this uh, this letter from Jefferson and and what Jefferson says is the reason that uh, 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 Patent, or, uh, patent rights can't be natural rights, that there are no natural property rights and inventions, is because they would be rights and ideas, and ideas are not the kinds of things that are susceptible to exclusive appropriation. That is, uh, if I have an idea, uh, and I give you my idea, I still have the idea. Uh, like, uh, and, and this is where the metaphor comes in. He says, uh, as someone who lights his taper at mine receives light from me without diminishing the light that I retain. Um, And so this is, in modern views, uh, kind of uh, an illustration of the economic concepts of non-rivalrousness, and uh, that is one of the criteria for uh, what economists today recognize as public goods, the kinds of goods that are uh, not subject to exclusive appropriation. Um, And that's the metaphor that is used to illustrate that non-rival quality of, of, of inventions and, by extension, works of authorship and therefore thought to justify intellectual property rights as a means of solving this uh, market failure that would result from free-riding with respect to those kinds of goods. Um, but it turns out that when Jefferson was, uh, was expressing this metaphor, he was actually paraphrasing a metaphor that had been used by uh, philosoph- uh, philosophical authors and, and, and uh, political theorists going back to antiquity. Uh, and in fact, its original source Well, its original, original source is a Latin poet whose work we've now mostly lost. Uh, The the portions of the work uh, of this poet that we have come to us by quotation principally from Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero. And in fact, it was Cicero who first expressed this metaphor uh, in quoting this poet Ennius when he said that we find the common property of all men uh, in uh, certain types of goods, uh, and the illustration of it is, uh, he who takes light from my fire draws water from my stream. Uh, he, uh, so the, the, the exact line is uh, uh, that this is something that somebody ought to do. Somebody ought to give of their fire, of their stream to someone who asks. Uh, because when I light somebody else's lamp by mine, uh, my lamp doesn't shine any dimmer for having lit someone else's. Uh, which is exactly the the metaphor that Jefferson is using in his letter. And in fact, uh, it stands to reason that Jefferson was in fact paraphrasing Cicero without attribution uh, in writing this letter.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and one of the things I really liked about this observation was that you point out how this parable of Jefferson's taper has been mobilized in sort of service of utilitarian ideas and against Lockean ideas but that in reality jefferson was drawing on a very different philosophical tradition a kind of classical tradition which kind of had different um underlying baseline principles i was wondering if, if could, could you talk a little bit about those and and how how was that kind of classical uh understanding of distributive justice different yeah. from the way we think about it
1: today so i mean the the There's a couple of issues uh, bound up here. One is that we're reading Jefferson anachronistically uh, as a utilitarian. Um, So Mill's book, Utilitarianism, had not been written at the time that Jefferson was writing. Uh, And Bentham's works, uh, which are seen as a kind of a foundation for that school of utilitarianism, uh, while they had been written, there's no evidence that Jefferson had ever seen them. Um, He had a copy of the Panopticon in his library, but not... uh, uh, Bentham's principles of legislation so um, the, uh, the the idea that Jefferson could be a utilitarian in terms of the historic arc of that school uh, simply doesn't wash that doesn't mean that his ideas were inconsistent with what we now understand to be utilitarianism uh, just that that couldn't have been his intent it couldn't have been to frame uh, these rights of in, in inventions in utilitarian terms uh, but if we read his letter uh, as invoking this uh, observation from Cicero's, that observation actually has a very, very deep history in Western philosophy. It's a history of 2,000 years old. This metaphor of lighting someone else's fire and being undiminished by having given this favor uh, gets brought up again and again and again. We find it in Seneca. We find it in Grotius. Uh, we find it uh, in quite a few places, and it's it's used over and over again because it's a highly generative. Metaphor; It is indicative of a particular kind of view of what we owe to each other as human beings, um, what we naturally owe to each other. That indeed, while today we associate natural law theories of property with John Locke, because of his tremendous influence on the course of Western philosophy, prior to John Locke there were natural law theories of property for 2,000 years uh, that did not depend at all on labor. Uh, and in fact, it's these traditions, these natural law traditions, uh, that I argue in, in my article, uh, that Jefferson was invoking in trying to distinguish the, the moral foundations of, of of the rights of authors and inventors in their creations.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that was really fascinating was just how fundamentally different the kind of concept of justification or the relationship between... Equality and inequality and moral desert was under those theories from the way we understand it today.
1: Yeah, so there's a really great book that's written by a philosopher named Samuel Fleischacker, uh, which he calls A Brief History of Distributive Justice, and I've I've relied a bit on the book in this paper. Um, And what Professor Fleischacker shows is that what we call distributive justice, like the term distributive justice has actually changed its meaning over the course of the history of Western philosophy. And in fact, it changed its meaning right around the time that Jefferson was alive. Uh, so whereas today we associate the idea of distributive justice as a basis for the claims of individuals to scarce resources uh, that we all need in order to flourish, uh, what we think of today as distributive justice, we largely think of in, in terms of John, John Rawls' theory of, of, of justice uh, and, and uh Uh, and his work uh, in that vein, and and people who have developed uh, similar ideas further, uh, such as Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum. Um, And this is an idea that we are all, by virtue of being human beings, entitled to some minimal level of resources necessary to a good life. Uh, And uh, it's an idea or a concept of justice or a conception of justice, if I'm being a Rawlsian, a conception of justice uh, that emerges naturally from the idea that we're all equal as human beings, an idea that Jefferson is associated with in his rhetoric, if not in his life, being you know, a fairly uh, a fairly odious slaveholder. Um, but in, in that regard, it is very, very different from the concept of distributive justice that philosophers would have bandied about for really the entirety of Western philosophy, almost up to Rawls. Um, but the idea that by virtue of our equal status as human beings, as equal rational beings, we might have... Legitimate claims to resources that are necessary to uh, reach our potential as human beings um, is one that gets its seed in the era of revolutions. It's one that the, the implications of equality for our claims to resources, including not only claims against one another, but a claim against our societies to provide us with the means of, a, of accessing these resources, is a quite recent, recent vintage. And it contrasts starkly with. Um, with the conception of natural uh, of natural distributive justice that prevailed really up until the eighteenth century, uh, which goes back to Aristotle, who uses the words distributive justice" but uses them to mean something quite different.
0: yes, yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what he what he actually meant because for me that really got it something uh, like a, a deep difference between what you're arguing. Jefferson was trying to convey through through his use of yeah. this 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 metaphor or parable and the way we understand it today through the lens of kind of distributive justice in a egalitarian
1: sense. Yeah, so I, so prior to the age of revolutions and and in classical philosophy and and really most western philosophy up to the enlightenment, distributive justice is a category of justice that is distinguished from um, uh, from commutative justice or retributive justice, uh, that is retributive justice or commutative justice is about remedying injuries done, and distributive justice is about what people deserve uh prospectively how how people might deserve certain rewards uh, in, in, especially but not exclusively rewards uh uh the rewards of civic life, the rewards uh, of office, political office, for example, and the rewards of honor in the state, but also material rewards, um, to the extent that those are going to be distributed prospectively. Um, and in that regard, from Aristotle, Aristotle on forward, distributive justice being about what people deserve requires some sort of notion that people have dessert, and the dessert among people may differ from person to person. That is... What we deserve depends on how good a person we are. It depends on our merit. And Aristotle and most thinkers thereafter conceded that merit might be judged differently from one society to the next. In democracies, he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, might have one view of uh, what constitutes merit. They might associate it with the status of being a freeman. Um, in uh, other types of societies it might be associated with other types of merit. But the idea is that the point of distributive justice is to discriminate among people according to their merit, such that what we're really looking at is not, you know, what is owed to each of us as equal human beings, but rather how do we determine which of us is better and therefore entitled to more stuff or more honors uh, or more of the things uh, that the state has the power to distribute. It's a very, very different notion and totally anathema to us steeped in uh, a two-century-long tradition of, of uh, equality as implemented by our political institutions.
0: Indeed, and I was really taken by your discussion of, of how Cicero and his contemporaries conceptualized sort of the reasons why it might be good or right to essentially share with others, as it were.
1: Yeah, so if, if you're not proceeding from this principle of equality and you're trying to figure out how to distribute goods um, and you don't subscribe to the idea that all of us by virtue of being human beings are entitled to at least some share of the goods that we need to live a good life, but instead you're just trying to figure out we have some goods to distribute here, who has the best claim to them by virtue of their merit, um, it's premised on the idea that not everybody is going to be satisfied that there is just this natural scarcity. Not everybody is going to get what they want, and so we've got to decide who wins and who loses as a matter of justice. Um, Cicero's principle for doing that was, you know, kind of simple and self-interested. He he says, all right, we start with what everybody has now, and he, being a rich guy, obviously benefited quite a bit from this. We start with what everybody has now, um, and you get to keep what you have now, but to the extent that you're in a position to distribute what you have now to others, you ought to do so based on your private evaluation of their merit. And by the way, to the extent that you can do so in a way that redounds to your own benefit because they'll be grateful to you and they'll return the favor someday in goods or political power or whatever else, so much the better. And he's writing this in in a book that was... Actually, you know written as advice to his son, who was a, a college student in Athens at the time and, and, uh, and was reportedly having uh, some trouble living a good life. But the idea continues to be picked up again and again over the course of the next 2,000 years. so it becomes especially important. And the reason why it's important to understanding Jefferson is because this particular category of goods, these goods that I can share with others without diminishing my own uh, resources, is especially useful in cultivating that kind of gratitude. right? Because by giving someone a favor that costs you nothing, you've indebted them to you, right? you've obligated them to be grateful to you in some sense and hopefully to return the favor someday, but it costs you nothing. Uh, and so uh, because it costs you nothing, it's an especially useful way of practicing the kind of generosity or beneficence uh, that he thinks is the ultimate consideration of justice with respect to distribution of goods. Uh, so these kinds of the special category of goods—the things that I can give without diminishing myself, light from my fire, water from my stream, my honest counsel, etc.—are the things that he says by our nature we have an obligation to share. And the nice thing about picking up on this uh, this attribution to Jefferson, this un- on that unattributed uh, debt to Jefferson, uh, debt to Cicero, excuse me, uh, in Jefferson's Taper is. Jefferson seems to be saying that ideas are those kinds of resources, mm-hmm. uh, that they're the kinds of things that we can share with others without diminishing our own holdings, and therefore we have a natural obligation to do so mm. um, in order to help our fellow human beings, um, which is, I think, mm. shocking and something that you don't get from the utilitarian account.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it, I mean, it's almost as if Cicero's account is like a version of philanthropy but with a kind of cynicism tainting it at the same time? Yeah
1: I mean you can ask whether any philanthropy isn't subject to the same kind of criticism uh, or or cynical kind of reading but but you know I think that that's that's probably a fair uh, modern reading of Cicero Um, and You know, not inconsistent with highly stratified societies the way that ancient Rome was or, frankly, colonial America was. Uh, There were definite haves or have-nots. There were slaves and freedmen, uh, not freed women, really. Uh, And so these were societies that were highly hierarchical and uh, practiced a lot of invidious discrimination. And a lot of those hierarchies uh, were reflected in and perpetuated by unequal distributions of wealth. Uh, And so, where uh, we have uh, this um, this kind of statement that here we have a resource that you ought to share, this is a message that is being sent by and to men of property. Men who have the status that they have in their societies, not only by virtue of, but certainly with the aid of highly unequal shares of the wealth of that society. Uh, Jefferson was, a you know, a gentleman farmer who lived on the labor of many, many enslaved people of African descent. Uh, and so it's perfectly, you know, uh, perfectly understandable that he says, you know, if you have this great idea, you should share it with the world. What have you lost? Um, but that is inconsistent, perhaps, with our modern understanding of how invention and authorship work, that they are labor-intensive activities, and that they do cost uh, the creator of knowledge something in the creation. And that is just a notion that, it seems to me does not occur to either Cicero or Jefferson um, because uh, by virtue of their status as men of property, men of leisure, um, those costs are invisible to them um, in in ways that they aren't to modern creative professionals.
0: Yeah, and and you point out in the paper that one of the reasons that Jefferson's parable has come to be picked up so extensively by by utilitarian uh, approaches in utilitarian views is this kind of, I guess, in, in the context of your paper, you presented almost like a faux ami, like a false friend, uh, his use of the term utility, which, you know, you suggest he meant something very different from what we say, what we mean yeah. by utility. Yeah,
1: so, say. I mean, utility, he uses the word utility in this letter. Um, but again, you know, utility did not have all the baggage as, uh, as a term, that it has in in modern philosophical contexts, right? Because now when we hear utilitar- utility, we think of utilitarianism. We think of utiles, the unit of account in social welfare functions or, or any other kind of calculation that a utilitarian might do in order to figure out what the right thing to do is or what the best rule is to govern society. Um, and that's just not a meaning that it had in the early, uh, at, at least, um, it's not the universal meaning that existed in the early 19th century when Jefferson was writing. But it was a concept that had a long history. It was a history uh, that we saw in Cicero. uh, In fact, the second book of Deoficius, which is the work in which this metaphor of lighting the lamp by uh, lighting someone else's lamp by yours appears. Uh, The second book is about utility. It's about what is useful to us. And that's part of where Cicero is describing our beneficence, our generosity as being useful precisely because it obligates others to our service. Uh, And uh, that's kind of a a venal understanding of of utility, uh, not necessarily entirely inconsistent with a capacious modern utilitarian notion of utility as whatever I understand to be good for myself in my subjective self-interest. But um, the the concept of utility in Cicero is a bit broader than just an individualized notion of of what is good for me in my subjective evaluation Uh, because it also partakes of what's useful to my society, um, what helps my fellow human beings, what is productive uh, as opposed to... uh, uh, perhaps indulgent, self-indulgent, uh, and there's a distinction there that also gets picked up uh, in the work of another of Jefferson's heroes. Um, but I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, so maybe maybe we will. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's in the work of of, of Sir Francis Bacon, uh, who was you know the English pioneer of empiricism uh, and whose uh, championing of empiricism was expressly based on the notion of utility that in pursuing knowledge we ought to pursue knowledge that is useful that produces results that are good for uh, the, the benefit of humankind uh, as opposed to kind of sterile deductive investigations from first principles of the type that scholastic philosophers might have been associated with
0: so in your in your paper you kind of frame your conclusions as both narrow and and broad, and I and I think we've we've really I think fleshed out some of the narrow conclusions, namely yeah. that you know this perspective helps us understand what Jefferson was actually talking about in the moment, as opposed to um, sort of uh, as 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 opposed to us looking to Jefferson to inform a debate that he wasn't actually having at the time.
1: Yeah, or reading Jefferson in the light of our own prejudices, right, and our own uh, contemporary concerns.
0: But but you make a, a kind of a, a broader claim, too, that perhaps this now lost, in many respects, perspective uh, on distributive justice and on utility and value and so on, while we might want not want to pick it up <laughs> exactly as it existed in the past, it might still have the ability to inform the way we think about uh, the patent system today. I was wondering if you could re- reflect a little bit on that and and why you think it might be helpful uh, in in terms of contemporary
1: debates yeah, so uh, the narrow reading of of uh, jefferson 's letter uh, in light of the attribute, the uh, identification of it with Cicero. Um, is simply that he was not a utilitarian; that he was not making utilitarian argument. You could read him uh, and his observations as providing some support to a utilitarian argument, but that wasn't his point. Um, and that you can understand his argument on its own terms as consistent with this older philosophical tradition, so that 's just the narrow reading, and importantly, that older philosophical tradition is is closely aligned with the concept of natural law, which today we associate with Locke exclusively when we 're talking about property and intellectual property, but which is actually much broader and so the narrow reading of jefferson 's letter, I think uh, simply allows us to conclude that Jefferson was making a natural law argument, and that natural law argument points in a different direction than the natural law arguments we're familiar with today. Uh, and so that, I think, is, is an important corrective to an anachronistic reading of Jefferson. But if you read Jefferson more broadly, uh, in light of the point that Cicero was making about private versus common property and how property ought to be used and distributed, uh, and you further understand his invocation of utility as reflecting uh, his the esteem that he held for Baconian science and, uh, and the collaborative... Uh, social uh, notion of Baconian science, uh, that we could read him to be arguing that, in fact, there is a natural obligation of those who have come up with new knowledge to share that knowledge with others to for the betterment of their society and the lot of their fellow citizens. Um, it's It's a kind of a radical idea, right? It's a radical idea that Jefferson obviously is Free to make from his position of comfort at Monticello, living off of the live of uh, living living off of the labor of uh, of enslaved people, um, who for whom the labor and cost of coming up with new inventions and new works of authorship uh, is perhaps trivial, um, but it is still a claim that deserves to be taken seriously. I think uh, because it is identified with this notion of scientific progress that prevailed up until. I think quite recently, um, this notion that scientific progress is a collaborative enterprise that it depends on certain norms these are norms uh, they 're sometimes referred to uh, as the Mertonian norms uh, by reference to the uh, the kind of sociology and histor- his historical investigations of uh, of, of Merton into uh, the Royal Society in England, which was founded based on bacon 's principles um, but the idea again is that. Uh, scientific knowledge should be treated in a communistic fashion, that we have an obligation to share it with one another so each of us can advance the ball uh, to the extent he or she is able. Um, and to allow each of us to do that, we each have to have access to the fruits of one another's labor uh, because it is, after all, a collective and a collaborative enterprise, not the work of any one mind.
0: Yeah, And what I, what I really liked about you bringing this perspective in is that it... it it strikes me that it's a really healthy corrective to the kind of impulse to reify that has grown out of a utilitarian kind of framework for thinking.
1: Reify about. what exactly? So. So,
0: to, to always turn ideas mm-hmm. into property mm-hmm. with the assumption that making, making it property is what's going to encourage people to invest in socially beneficial activity which in a lot of ways actually still seems to me inconsistent with the the actual kind of salient motivations for a lot of people engaging in many forms of relevant research and I mean so it, it like for, just as, as, as like a kind of a concrete case in point right this this sort of like modern version of the Jeffersonian model you're proposing seems like 180 degrees in tension with something like the bidole
1: Act sure example sure so I mean it's interesting I mean there may be something to the idea that by giving somebody a property right in the the fruits of their intellectual labor they will have an incentive and be more likely to develop it into something that is useful for society and the utilitarian way of thinking about this argument well is well um, does it get us the most good for the lowest cost right the, the cost of giving people these exclusive rights is that they're going to limit access by pricing them higher than the market otherwise would in a, a, in, under free competition. Of course, if the market was freely competitive with respect to these ideas, the argument goes uh, those who didn't invest in the creation of the idea will sell it for less than the creator because they don't face the fixed cost of creating it in the first place, and that spiral will lead people to conclude that it's not worth it to create new knowledge. Um, And so that's a set piece of utilitarian thinking um, that, that frankly, has some force. Um, But I think your reifying comment suggests uh, maybe that the problem with utilitarian arguments like that is not that they are wrong. It's that they are not the exclusive means of addressing this issue of how we get people to create knowledge that's going to benefit all of us. Um, how we induce people to do it. As you point out, many people are motivated by intrinsic motivations, not pecuniary motivations. Of course, it's easier to be motivated that way if you don't have pecuniary pressures on you, the way that Cicero and Jefferson didn't. And so that's you know, a critique of that idea that intrinsic motivations are going to get us what we want. But the idea of Baconian science and it being a collective uh, obligation of societies is a different way of looking at this. And it's one that prevailed in research universities for a very, very long time. Uh, and the idea here is that progress is a social enterprise and it's a social obligation. Uh, and so our societies have an obligation to support it, including by pecuniary means. Um, and so when you reference the bayh Act, I think a lot of the motivation of the bayh Act is not that we weren't getting new knowledge, but that it wasn't be put, being put to use Um, And that in order to put it to use, you had to give somebody an incentive not just to create the knowledge, but to commercialize it. Uh, And so by giving the private sector a profit motive, you would give the private sector, which is good at commercialization ostensibly, a reason to get together with the research and the university sector, the academic sector and the public research sector, uh, and so that each could do what they were good at the danger of that is that the profit motive ends up taking over everything else. And we lose this idea that there is still a collective social obligation and that by undertaking that obligation as a matter of norms, including Mertonian norms, like the norm of scientific communism, that we lose that avenue towards production of of valuable and useful knowledge um, in a way that I think was reflected in, again, Francis Bacon's uh, famous uh, story, The New Atlantis, where he envisioned this hidden idealized society uh, that was uh, operated largely as uh, a vehicle for scientific discovery and that the most valued people in the society were their scientists and natural philosophers uh, and that they worked together and each had their role and each contributed to the whole. And when any one of them had a discovery, they gave him an ample reward and they erected a statue in his honor. (laughs) Uh, And this was supposedly a model of how the good society interested in the pursuit of knowledge ought to operate, that it was a collective and social enterprise.
0: Yeah, and I I, I can't help but think that, like, some remnant of that kind of communistic concept of, of science and knowledge persists and is even starting to see kind of a new flowering in, like, things like the open source movement and push to, like, you know, encourage researchers to make information available as freely as possible, and so on.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the open source movement is obviously not a new thing. I mean, how old is Yochai Benkler's Wealth of Networks now? It's almost two decades old, right? (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, by the time he was writing about these issues, they were not new either. Mm. Um, But... Uh, you know, there, is, there has always been this kind of communistic strain. It's interesting, you know, in the paper I, I talk about Aquinas being, so, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, the, you know, the, the, the church father uh, who, whose uh, marriage of Christian theology and Aristotelian philosophy in the, uh, in the early Middle Ages, or the middle Middle Ages, I guess, uh, is, is the basis of so much of the philosophical tradition that follows. Um, and he is of a piece with Cicero in terms of the rights of property and so forth. But there is this countercurrent in Christian thought and in Western thought generally. Uh, you know the, the idea of Christian equality, right? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ for those who believe, um, and uh, and the idea that that implies claims on material resources. In, in in particular, the the major debate in Aquinas' day was, you know, uh, should the church be poor? Uh, should the church have property? Should priests have property? Uh, is it consistent with our obligations as Christians? Um, and you know. That kind of uh, dialectic between communism and hierarchy uh, is one that you see play out over the past two millennia. It's not going anywhere. Um, And I think that the problem with our contemporary debate is that we think we're arguing about something else than that kind of tension between uh, treating one another as equals in communistic fashion and recognizing merit and rewarding it. Um, that we think we're arguing about what is good with a capital G, right? Whether, as a matter of natural law, creators have a moral claim, a pre-political claim to what they have created, uh, or laborers to what they have labored on. Or whether whatever produces the greatest good for the greatest numbers, if that was something that we could definitively and objectively measure and put a number on, is good and therefore to be pursued. We frame our arguments in those terms. We don't just do it in property and intellectual property law. Um, But I think lying under the surface of those arguments is this deeper debate over whether we have obligations to each other as equals uh, or whether we have some obligation to recognize the inequalities amongst ourselves and to organize our lives, including our material lives, in recognition of the merits of Uh, people who have some sort of claim to hierarchical, uh, uh, to a higher hierarchical status, if if we can agree as a society on what that claim might be grounded in. Um, I don't, I don't think I have an answer to that question as to which is the right view. I think each of us probably accepts that we feel more communist in some circumstances and more hierarchical in other circumstances. And I think Maybe the most sensitive of us recognize that we feel more hierarchical in those areas where we feel at an advantage, Um, (laughs) uh, and and maybe more communistic where we feel ourselves at a disadvantage. But, you know, that's human nature, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we're having these debates over what our policy should look like, whether it's regarding material property or intellectual property or anything at which, you know, we we share in labors and benefits, but not always equally... um, we have decisions to make about where we're going to fall on that spectrum, and I, I don't think those are easy decisions to make, And but I also don't think that uh, that we're arguing on that level right now, at least with respect to IP doctrine.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's right, that, you know, there's a way in which the the ostensible theoretical justifications we offer often seem like placeholders for heuristics that Drive our actual behavior in practice in yeah. so many
1: cases. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's hard because you know, as lawyers and 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 legal academics, you know, law is an applied discipline. Law is an instrument that gets us to some to some place that we want to be, uh, and so it's hard not to think in instrumentalist terms about how we theorize it. Also, so you know, if 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 we honestly believe that you know. Those who create knowledge deserve something by virtue of their merit of of having created this knowledge. And they deserve it more if there is a contest uh, than someone who just wants to use that knowledge for their own purposes. That leads us to a certain place. Uh, We we see a certain state of the world that we want to get to, and we can use law as an instrument to get there. Uh, But it's unlikely that we're going to justify the legal rules that we adopt to get there in those terms, that you deserve it more than they do. Um, that just strikes us as, I think, in our modern view, again, as, as unjustified, uh, in a way that the ancients certainly would have no trouble, uh, would have had no trouble finding it justified.
0: Yeah. So, so Jefferson was talking about patents, and in your paper, you frame this sort of theoretical move in terms of the patent system. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, it felt to me like your observations about Jefferson. And the sort of tradition he was drawing on were almost like a way of saying, you know, a, a gentleman is not so concerned about kind of reaping the material benefits yeah. of the ideas that he has produced. Yeah. Um, but with an implication that they would be accompanied. But but with an implication.
1: Sorry, right, that's the It's fun. okay. Wait, I'm gonna unplug this for you. Thanks. You can edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. yeah but but with the implication that there would also be honor and fame, perhaps like personal benefits of a non pecuniary nature accompanying yeah. this information generation and you know and and, and normally what you know we think about patents less in terms of attribution, but we often. For better or for worse, think about copyright in terms of attribution. We use a lot of the same language and a lot of the same ideas comparing the two. And, and I, I couldn't help but wonder, right, whether you know we might whether we whether we ought to think about this kind of act, attribution and non pecuniary benefit as also a certain kind of property of a different sort, even. Um, and, and, and what, if anything, these insights might tell us about, about the way we think about ownership of, of literary works yeah. and, and other forms of works of authorship as well as, as ideas? Yeah,
1: so, I mean, the, the, uh, the epigraph that I, I put at the front of this uh, paper is a, is a quotation from, from Bacon's New Atlantis. And it is this idea that when someone comes up with a good idea, we erect a statue to him and we give him a liberal re- reward. Right? And that these two things, the kind of social acclaim or honor and the pecuniary benefits, uh, seem to go together when, in fact, they don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Um, and we could easily separate them if we wanted to. Um, and, you know, again, the idea that the gentleman doesn't insist on pecuniary reward for, uh, for bestowing on his society the, the knowledge that he has had the leisure to produce... You know, this is something that we see in Cicero, certainly. Uh, It's, you know, it's possibly there in Jefferson as well, although it's less clear, at least from this letter, that that's what uh, he is necessarily saying. Um, But, uh, you know, I think you're right that this is an area where what you think about the importance of the pecuniary rewards that attend to knowledge creation uh, under the law, Uh, whether you think they're important depends probably on how comfortable you are. Um, And, you know, we law professors are a pretty comfortable bunch. Uh, uh, And, and so it's easy for us to sit here uh, in our tenured professorships and say, oh, you shouldn't be so concerned about uh, whether you're going to have a patent that you can fold into a company that you can then sell to a bigger company and retire on and so forth. Uh, The, the, the pursuit of knowledge is its own reward, and 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 we create the knowledge for its own sake. You know, most people can't afford to live that way, um, and so you know, the danger of this kind of view, to the extent that your attraction to these norms of collective and communistic scientific endeavor, um, is is grounded in that kind of a view on the importance of pecuniary uh, motivations. I think it's dangerous. Um, I think that you know. The attribution questions separated from the pecuniary questions are 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 important and, and and useful, but I think they come from a different place. I think those would have been considered much more important by the 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 men of property such as Cicero and Jefferson in fact, Cicero thought it was going to be his greatest legacy mm. uh that he had instructed his nation uh even after his death uh in the ways of wisdom. He turned out not to be wrong about that um uh, his uh, his legacy endured through his writings even to today. Uh, I don't I, I don't think any of us scribbling in the pages of law reviews are going to be able to say <laughs> two thousand years from now that he was a, a, a hero of his country. Yeah. Um, you know it would be nice, but let's not get our hopes up. And yet, to the extent that ideas that we ourselves contribute to our societies, uh, we think benefit those societies. I think most of us probably feel like it would be nice to be recognized for that, separate and apart from whether it ends up uh, contributing more to the material resources at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's maybe a natural part of human nature, too.
0: Yeah, no, I, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I've, I've found that sort of isolating it in the way that you have is really kind of productive and, well, and helpful. Um, so, so Jeremy, in closing, um, this paper obviously relates to some of your other work engaging in this same kind of long-standing and and unresolved and possibly unresolvable controversy um, in terms of people's theoretical justifications for intellectual property. Um, But it also seems like the beginning, perhaps, of something else? And I was wondering, you know, yeah. sort of where do you see this project going in the future? So
1: I have been working for a number of years now. My editors is, I, I'm trying his patience and, and, and he's been very, very patient with me and I continue to be appreciative. Uh, so I have a book under contract with Cambridge University Press on value pluralism in theoretical justifications for intellectual property. Um, and it's very much of a piece with the discussion that we've been having today, right? The idea that, you know, we all feel torn between these different things that we think are important and that we can't have all of them. Um, the, the, the great attraction of theories uh, like utilitarian and, like utilitarianism in particular and ideal theories more generally is that they hold out the hope that somewhere there is a right answer to the dilemmas of, of, of social design and political choice that we all face. Um, and I just don't think that that's true. Uh, I think that there are different things that we value, that we value each of them differently, and we can't necessarily compare them, even within our own minds, let alone between each other. And so when we're designing legal regimes around something like how we're going to produce knowledge that is going to advance the happiness of humankind and the well-being of humankind, um, which is something that is quite urgent these days, um, to think that there is one right... Answer to how we ought to do that is, I think, a dangerous idea. And so what I'm working on in the book is trying to understand the dimensions of the arguments we have with one another, to try and get at what's really at stake, to understand where the irreconcilable conflicts are, so that we can recognize this is what we're really fighting about uh, and find a way to resolve those disputes in ways that aren't necessarily... uh, well, in the utilitarian case, for example, aren't necessarily the exclusive province of, uh, of econometricians right, who are, who are um, modeling out their social welfare functions generations out into the future to figure out what we ought to do today. I think that is a ludicrous kind of an approach to these very, very difficult and very, very important problems, uh, which I see as social and ultimately political problems mm. of how we try to... Take our competing desires, both competing with each other and competing within ourselves, and organize them into a plan of action for the future, uh, including a plan of action for how we're going to live together and organize our lives. Um, and it strikes me as a very, very important uh, endeavor. Um, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, I'm going to uh, produce this this book hopefully soon. Uh, that <laughs> will that will. Not answer the question, but identify what the parts of the question are Mm -hmm. uh, in in a way that helps us think about what institutions and what sort of uh, ethical frameworks and attitudes we ought to adopt uh, in the process of trying to live out those solutions.
0: Cool. Well, the book sounds fantastic. Yeah. Valuing
1: Progress. Look forward to forthcoming from Cambridge University Press uh, probably in a year or so.
0: Great. Well, I look forward to reading it when yeah. it's when it's ready and hopefully we can have another conversation about the book. When I would love it's that. Ready for audiences.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. All right, thanks Brian. <laughs> We're here in the lobby of a theater where the motion picture Fire Sale has just been screened, and I'm speaking with Rob Reiner, who's one of the stars of the film. The star. Uh, I noticed that the audience was laughing throughout the entire film. Is that intentional? It was a bit of a slip-up. Fire Sale is a remake of uh, Dante's Inferno. Production ran amok, and uh, we got nuts in us here. Fire Sale. It's just plain nuts. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.